I'm Hannes Roth. I'm here with my co-host Katharina Lauer, and this is Data for Life. Thank you, Hannes, for your kind introduction. My name is Kathy Lauer. Many, many years ago, I worked as a wet lab biologist and then moved out of the laboratory and joined Elixir, an intergovernmental organization for bioinformatics, to shape the industry program and to build a bridge between the private and the public sector. So that makes it completely clear you are the life science expert in the room because I am merely an economist. So um, I'm an assistant professor in entrepreneurship, tech entrepreneurship from um, Berlin in Germany. I'm particularly interested in data-based businesses. So what we might refer to today as a fancy word, artificial intelligence startups or something like that. So Hannes, I think it is entirely clear now why an economist would be interested in those topics. But why would a biologist care? And I think my motivation here is to highlight the hard work done by my science colleagues and how important it is that we share this work so it can be picked up by other professionals, by innovators um, in academia and industry, and how it can ultimately be translated to benefit society at large in form of new medicines or, for example, environmentally friendly washing powders or healthy food for your cat. So we're both together here providing this podcast because we think that in the life sciences in recent years, something very extraordinarily happened, which is there are a lot of companies now, particularly SMEs, so small and medium-sized companies that use data from the sciences, from the life sciences to create new value. And we started working a couple of years ago. So already like studying those and now we try to bring everything a little bit together in this podcast so if you're hearing this this is a podcast for scientists and for young entrepreneurs or older entrepreneurs and for people in the businesses that are interested in entrepreneurial perspective on science data in the life sciences so biodata Okay, so for you as a biologist, it might be completely clear why someone else could be interested in life science data. For me, as um, as someone from a business school, it might be less clear to be interested in genomics. So, I mean, I I really have to appreciate meeting you a couple of years back. I mean, without you and um, uh, without a couple of colleagues in, in microbiology and molecular biology, I would have never learned so much about genomics that I've learned in recent years and get excited by this topic because it provides so many opportunities for not only revolutionizing healthcare, uh, therapeutic and diagnostic applications, but also, meanwhile, we have seen ventures in the agriculture. We have seen ventures working in veterinary practices. We have seen there, there are these kind of awkward solutions that use genomic information to find the best romance partners which is sounds funny to some extent unethical maybe as well but is definitely something interesting and something that we need to look at so therefore that was quite a revelation for me yeah i think um for me it has always been clear and for many other scientists i guess that 
in the life sciences, data are the real asset. And open data resources can be an even bigger asset and play a crucial role in um, facilitating innovation in the sector. So they allow people in industry, in academia, or even the wider public to build services and products on top of that data. So this is a really interesting concept, which um, I only started to realize when I was working with you, that there is actually an, an open pool. Companies can make money by using these openly available resources. So I'm in entrepreneurship for quite some time now. And I've seen a lot of different companies, um, been a mentor to several of them as well. And what's quite normal is that you have a young startup that uses the resources that they have around them. So many of those provided sometimes for free and sometimes for a little money, let's say. But what is really striking to me in the life sciences is that there is a lot of data out there that they could tend to rightly use, but that this does not necessarily mean that it's completely easy. Because to most of the founders that we have talked to in recent years, and this was for me also like a reason why to do this podcast, is that actually it's pretty hard. It's pretty, pretty, pretty hard to organize the data in the way that it becomes useful. And so just because it's free and, and, and potentially right, rightly available does not necessarily mean that you can just use it to create a new service or product. That is, for me, utterly fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're quite right there. But I think this is where the big opportunity lies, right? The linking of, of these open data and really digging into the matter, putting all those resources together is where the actual wealth lies. And if a company can uncover this wealth, well, then they are probably set up for a successful venture. Yeah, and I mean, particularly now that we're seeing so much data coming up, I mean, let alone in the like genomic field, if we look at all the kind of national initiatives that collect genome information, in Europe, we would particularly think of Finland and the UK, for instance, there is so much data now coming to um, that is potentially able to be applied to interesting new fields. And I think we just explored the tip of the iceberg so far. And for me, it's, it's particularly surprising to see, okay, who are the ones, who are these, these, these people and who's, who are these companies that actually use this data for what purposes? And um, what I find particularly interesting is, and I, I really look in, I'm really looking forward to talking to a couple of founders uh, during our podcast series on that, is where do the discussions that we tend to have in science, such as the discussions on data quality or science replication, where do these discussions that we regularly only have between scientists, like where do they maybe also come together with these founders who actually have to use this data that someone has produced in their study, and now they need to use that for an actual um, application, actual product or service. So this is hopefully, hopefully this is going to be an exciting discussion for us. One thing we've not mentioned yet are these ecosystems where really these connections happen, right? Where 
these innovators meet people from academia and really these ideas are discussed. I think one thing we also want to look at are these innovation ecosystems um, where these ventures are created because I think one, one aspect that is really important in that respect is skilled employees. They move from university to a company and then take the knowledge from that company and maybe start off a, a new venture and really um, transfer cutting edge technologies and know-how from one place to another. So I think this might explain why we see many um, ecosystems such as, for example, Silicon Valley or um, London or Cambridge thrive because the whole region is really set up to support that exchange. Yeah, so completely right. I mean, as we say, so a venture does not grow on a green field. It's not a one-person, regularly it's not a one-person business, regularly it's not like one ingenious woman sitting in the cellar thinking of the next new revolution, but you need numerous people getting involved. I mean, even if you only talk about like a founder team, you regularly need complementary people there, but you also depend on the structures that you have around yourself. So like if you if you want to start a biotech, you oftentimes need... Um, not only lab, uh, lab space, like wet lab space, but also office space. You would need the people to to actually do this this work at the um, lab bench as well as at the office. I mean, think about. Um, so I, I'm just thinking about a couple of um, the ventures that we've talked to in recent years, and many of those like they change over time. At the very beginning, that it might be two or three scientists from um, I don't know the Welcome Sanger Institute. So coming together, thinking about like an ingenious new thing, um, might be a molecular biologist or a geneticist or um, a bioinformatician. But at some point, um, I've, I've, I've seen that those companies then pivoted, so which is like a changing the business model. Initially, they may, might be uh, some kind of a consultancy firm, but suddenly they become a product. And when you start becoming a product, you need different people. So you might need a software developer. And you don't find necessarily find those people at the same place as you find a biologist. Ecosystems such as Cambridge or London are great for this very thing. Is they have um, they have those people, they have those experts, they have also the structures there. They have the lab capacity, they have the incubators that help actually the ventures grow, and like they help also the scientists being aware that entrepreneurship is an interesting alternative or interesting complementary to the academic careers, which is also not maybe not self-explanatory to many scientists. Yeah, and I think openness in science, coming back to that, is not something that we've figured out as one of the drivers for innovation. I mean, there are big organizations who have articulated the obligation to share scientific knowledge to benefit society at large, such as, for example, the UNESCO in the Universal Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights, or Article 27 of Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So this is really something that has been recognized on a much higher level. And I think open science, open collaborations are not necessarily irreconcilable with commercialization. So I think they should really be seen as complementary and um, part of one, one holistic framework 
for innovation in the life sciences. But then there we are again. I mean, open innovation is also a trend in many companies for quite some years now. And rightfully so, of course. So there are big pharma companies who embrace open innovation. Some of them also sitting in Cambridge, as I know. But I think for me, it always goes down to what does that mean? So how does open innovation roll out? Does a company or does um, an institute do a little bit of open innovation? Openness here and there, but not everywhere. And particularly when we talk about data, I mean, I, I know that Elixir cares about that a lot. When we talk about openness and data and science data is what does that mean? Does providing science data just just a dump, a data dump on the on, on some kind of a web page, does that suffice? Or how does it actually have to look like? And regularly, it's rather a better idea to provide it in a format that somebody else could use it. And the problem is that if you think of the user not being just another scientist, but of the user also being maybe another company, a smaller company maybe, who cannot afford taking a team of five people worrying about this data set for the next two months, then suddenly everything changes and suddenly you have to think a little bit different about how you provide this openness. Again, so I think or what I hope for is when we talk to these founders and also to the large corporations is to talk a little bit about how they, how they provide this openness and how they actually use it. So we are going to talk to a couple of founders, corporates, to investors, and uh, also to one or two scientists, of course, about this entrepreneurial perspective on data and the, and the life sciences. So yeah, I'm also really excited and really looking forward to those interviews and what the future holds for our podcast. And I hope that we will have many of you tune in again for our first session, where we interview Maria, he is the founder of a company called LifeBit. <laughs>